Let's talk with Trent R. Nelson here this morning on a lovely day. And it's a lovely day to go back into the history books because when we go back and learn a bit of history, uh, we invariably learn a bit about the present and even perhaps the future. Who are we speaking with today? Well, you'll just have to be patient. He is Dr. Steve Babson, and he has written a book called Forgotten Populists, When Farmers Turned Left to Save Democracy. Now, the audience has heard the term populist before, presently, perhaps even at different points in American history. But this is a very crucial point in American history. A lot of talk of silver. And I'm sure that we will get to that with Dr. Steve Babson, along with so many other things. Such a pleasure to have you this morning, sir. Thank you for joining us. A pleasure to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. So, sir, before we get to the history of what your book is about, might the audience have a bit of history as per who you are and what gave you such driving ambition to tell the tales of the farmers the turn of the 19th to 20th century? Well, I'm, I'm an historian. That's my trade. I found the history of the populist movement an especially intriguing one. Uh, I live in Detroit. My wife and I have been here for the last almost 50 years now. And we've gone through some remarkable economic and social changes. And when I look at that history of the populist movement back in the 1890s, what's striking to me is how a lot of what we are experiencing today, the same kinds of issues, first appear on a national scope and scale in those closing decades of the uh, 19th century, 130 years ago, when the populists were protesting the extraordinary power of a new class of mega-rich uh, absentee investors, capitalists, who dominated the, the emerging industrial society. And I'm talking about John Rockefeller. I'm talking about Andrew Carnegie, Cornelius Vanderbilt, uh, Jay Gould, the, the robber barons, as they were called, who were responsible for, on the one hand, building a new kind of industrial society based on railroads and steel making and iron and mechanized farming equipment. But we're also responsible for the abuse of that power. And a lot of farmers and a lot of workers objected to that. And they didn't have a way of remedying it through the Republican and Democratic parties because both of them were devoted to and answered to that new elite of mega-rich corporate investors. And so the populists were an effort to put actually the voice of the people into the democratic and political mix. They couldn't do so through the parties because there were no party primaries. There was no way of bringing a new voice into the Republican or Democratic parties. So at that time, a third party made sense, and that's what the populists were about. They were saying, we need a government that is strong enough, fortified by democratic rights, to be able to counter the power of big business, which is dominating a small government at that time, uh, and doing so at the expense of working people uh, and farmers in particular. Fascinating stuff, absolutely. Many of the topics, such as uh, monetary reform, regulatory reform, these are all topics that, as you noted, do come up during this last decade of the 19th century. But for those individuals who may have heard the term populist in modern contexts, what separates, what is the difference between the populists of old and the individuals or, or politicians uh, that call themselves today populists? 
or are called populist by uh, the media often enough. They don't call themselves that, but they, they are sort of dismissed as if populism was a, a dirty word, something that conveyed a lack of reliability, uh, that they were demagogues, that they were promising more than they could deliver. And I think that's the, the way the term has been used in recent years. And I think it's an abuse. As an historian, I find that really depressing because uh, actually the populists were a very specific political movement that had an enormous impact on American life because they were the ones who persuaded many people in the Democratic Party in particular, but also in the Republican Party. There was a constituency that wanted, actually, a government capable of protecting them against corporate abuse, against the abuse of monopolies that were price gouging people and against big business in general, basically taking advantage of their control of the government. I mean, keep in mind that the railroads, for example, that were the driving engine of the industrializing America of the late 19th century, the railroads were initially welcomed by people, farmers in particular. This was a way to get their, their harvest to market. But the problem was is that the, the government then lavished extraordinary subsidies and gifts on these railroads. Uh, in the case of the federal government, they gave the railroads of that era a total of 170 million acres of free land to encourage the investment in the railroads. They gave them cash rewards for each mile built of new rail. They gave them protection on their debt. They turned the other way when those companies then began to actually fleece and steal money from taxpayers. And so what the populace wanted was either regulate those railroads and force them to actually set rates, freight rates, and treat their workers with respect, or basically because they were built with public resources, maybe the government should take them over the, the operation of the railroad and run it for the public benefit rather than for the enrichment of a group of absentee investors and wealthy folks on the East Coast. So Kansas farmers at that time, their price was going down for their wheat and corn. It cost more to ship that corn on a monopoly railroad to Chicago than they could actually get on the market price once it arrived there. So in 1894, during a severe depression where there was no support for working people or farmers, they were burning corn as fuel. That's how futile it was to actually try and market it. So they were looking for, they wanted to establish a market economy that would actually serve the overwhelming majority of people, who included, by the way, farmers. Farmers at that time were for over 40% of the uh, working population were farmers or farm workers. That compares to today, where it's under 2%. So this was a very different world. Farmers were really acting on behalf of the notion that they were the ones who were feeding the nation and doing the labor. And they had allies in the Knights of Labor who felt they, too, were being abused by railroad companies that just ignored safety standards. Over 2,000 workers were killed every year on the railroad, which were usually in bankruptcy, were really badly managed and badly run, price gouging and abusive in their behavior. So the populace wanted a public intervention that would turn that potential of an industrial world to the advantage of the majority of people who were farmers and workers. Beautifully explained, sir, and we appreciate that thorough detail. Yes, the populace certainly felt, to to use a phrase of the time, a, a cross of gold hanging around the neck. And it is a tale of innovation because from the populace and, and from Bryant kind of evolves into the progressive era in many instances and ways, no? Absolutely. I just want to, though, add one little detail. William Jennings Bryan, who was the Democratic Party candidate for president, 
1896, never called himself a populist and wasn't a populist. But what he did do was that he noticed that the populist in the preceding years, early 1890s, had had enormous success as a third party, even the disadvantages of being a third party. They elected six governors. They sent 50 members to Congress. They won hundreds of local positions in major cities. Like San Francisco had a populist mayor. And William Jennings Bryan figured out that if the Democratic Party remained wedded to the mega rich and the robber barons of that era, they were going to lose their base to the emerging populist party. So what Brian did was he co-opted the populist agenda, adopted some of their measures, including expanding the money supply by adding silver to the mix. So expand the money supply to bring interest rates down, which were crushing a lot of people, high interest rates in the double digits. In the South, some people paying 40 and 50 percent interest rates to buy vital supplies and food. So that was a, had a real appeal to the general population, and Brian could see that. Bimetallism. So he adopted part of the populist agenda. Bimetallism, right? Right. He wanted, uh, And the way it went was that the bankers wanted it to limit it to gold so that you could only issue paper currency if it was backed by what was a very scarce and precious metal. They like that. You keep the money supply scarce and small, interest rates go up, and you get paid back if you're a banker with, with bills that are, quote-unquote, as good as gold. What the populace wanted was an expansion of the money supply by adding silver, but also, by the way, printing actual bills backed by the government, as they had done during the Civil War to defeat slavery. They printed the greenbacks that were protected by the integrity of the U.S. government in the same way, by the way, that our paper money today is not based on gold. It's based on the capacity of the government to ensure a stable and sustainable economic growth. And we would not get a, a new system of that nature until, until Senator Aldrich, Nelson Aldrich, no? Well, it actually started with the Federal Reserve Act in 1913. Then during the New Deal, when the gold standard was suspended because the economy had collapsed, based on many of the fault lines that ran through that dependence on gold. And then Richard Nixon was the one who finally wrote off even any right. remaining residual use of gold to value U.S. currency on global markets. So it was a process over time, but really it vindicated what the populists were saying. Absolutely. Let's talk with Trent R. Nelson here with Dr. Steve Babson. We're having a lot of fun talking about history, talking about populism of the late 19th century. Forgotten Populists When Farmers Turned Left to Save Democracy is the book. It is out. I have had the pleasure of going through it. It is a wonderful read, full of insight, brilliance. But before we continue, sir, I'd love to touch back on what you were saying about William Jennings Bryant, who he was the Democratic nominee in three elections, if I'm not mistaken. And he, as you noted, adopted many of these uh, these measures or policies or ideas. And I think we've seen in American history, going back to the Democratic Republicans and Federalists and then the Democrats and the Whigs, there's always this sort of domination by by adoption, the sort of adoption of ideas to weaken the other party until it disintegrates. It's, it's a fascinating trend over the course of time. And it's also made major changes in the, the two major parties. I mean, it wasn't just the Democrats and Brian who started to wipe their range of programs to address the issues of farmers and working people. Uh, even the Republicans could see that they were heading toward a loss of support if they didn't actually address the needs of farmers and workers. And so there was even something in the Republican Party in the years that followed 
into the 20th century uh, that we would find maybe a little bit hard to understand today was called progressive republicanism. And it was led by a guy named uh, Robert La Follette, became the governor of Wisconsin and then the senator from Wisconsin. And he actually started something called the Progressive Party, which later merged back into the Democratic Party. So you can see this kind of constant tension between parties that start to ossify into a stable and conservative kind of elite and then are forced to change by the emergence of new ideas, new ways of thinking, people who today can run in the presidential primaries and try and change the direction of those two parties. Absolutely. And to that point, sir, after to the work that Robert LaFollette did, the election of 1912 was something of a death stroke for that movement as a as an isolated movement, as a movement outside of the other parties, in large part to thanks to Teddy Roosevelt. Well, uh, in 1912, it was Woodrow Wilson who won the presidency. And that's an interesting election because in that year, there were actually four major presidential candidates. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was one of them, and Cleveland was another, and actually Eugene Debs was the fourth. And actually, of those four candidates, three of them described themselves as progressive, and the fourth, Eugene Debs, uh, described himself as a socialist. What a time to be alive! (laughs) It was a... I mean, in a, you can see the, the projection, the trajectory from the early 1890s to 1912. And obviously the, the ideas of the populace for government regulation, for an intervention to regulate what was otherwise the profiteering of big business had made enormous stride, but through the influence it had on the major party organizations. And it wasn't Cleveland, by the way. It was Polk in 1912. I misspoke. Yes, and and of course they ran William Howard Taft ran as well. That's the uh, Taft. I meant Taft. Sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. That's the that's the last time that a third party beat one of the two major parties. Right. Unbelievable. Yep. Unbelievable. Yep. And again, Dr. Steve Babson here speaking about his book, Forgotten Populist: When Farmers Turned Left to Save Democracy, as well as just a bit of the history surrounding. This time period, uh, we love history here. We love reading, and Dr. Steve Babson's book is a fantastic one. Sir, many of the things that we've spoken about, our listeners could be forgiven for wondering if we're in a time loop because many of the things, as you noted, seem to be still amongst us, still points of discussion. What can we learn from the farmers that turned left to save America? Well, what we learned was that if you think big and have some degree of political daring, you can actually sometimes, not always, but sometimes you can change the way the course of history. And the populace definitely, not right away, but over time, had have, have had a, an enormous impact on the political terrain of the United States, shifting it dramatically inside both of the major parties. So I would argue that we have to think big now, and maybe even bigger than we had previously imagined. We have some problems that are not going to be solved by free market strategies. I'm thinking in particular of climate change, where it's going to require some kind of public policy that establishes a survivable basis for sustaining our economy. And right now, we're in serious difficulty in that regard, enormous inequality of income. And it's, again, incumbent on us to think about ways of addressing that. Sometimes it's going to mean supporting unions, as has recently occurred, where we've had some major strikes that have done, I think, the right thing in terms of reestablishing the basis of what is a livable wage and a reward for labor, particularly in the auto industry. So uh, I think government regulation has to be 
considered in only in the context where there's enough democratic protection. And I mean, democratic with small d. I mean, democracy right. is a way of making sure that that regulation doesn't turn op- oppressive in its own right. It should be representative of the needs of the majority of people confronted by a whole range of issues, whether it's climate change or a global economy that has for many, many years now been organized around prioritizing the interests of multinational corporations. It needs to be rethought. We do need global trade, but we need to do it on a basis where people are not being undercut by starvation wages on the other side of the world. Wonderfully put, sir. Professor William Durant once noted that that laws, when properly made, should only take away those personal freedoms that in turn create greater collective freedoms, right? Right. So certainly we never would want them or some regulation to turn oppressive, but certainly we need rules. We've proven, I think, as uh, as various societies and civilizations that we need structure. We're not good just winging it, sir. Oh, right. And the populists, uh, they had a very interesting approach to cooperatives. That was a major part of their platform. They said private initiative can be made all the more appealing when it's a collective effort by farmers working on the market to bring their goods together and and bundle them together and get a better price on the marketplace, or if it's workers who become cooperative owners of their own enterprise, they wanted a government that would support that kind of private collective effort on behalf of cooperatives, whether it was worker cooperatives or farmer cooperatives. And for that, of course, they were condemned as being socialists. But if there were, there were socialists among the populace, but the majority of them were called themselves Christian socialists. And they believed that Christ had been a commoner and a carpenter and an agrarian radical, and they, they saw him as their leader, their model for what would be appropriate in the 1890s, and who knows, maybe maybe we need to update that idea as well. Well, I mean, this word socialism, it's the, the prefixes, they just scare everyone to death. You see the SOC, and all of a sudden everyone's shaking in their boots, and words have meanings, and of course... Collective work is, as Franklin Delano Roosevelt would later note, oftentimes creates meaningful work, right? Something that people, whether it be 130 years ago or in 2023, still crave. We still wish to do things in our lives that have meaning, as President Jimmy Carter said in his famous uh, Malay speech, right? We cannot rely on material possessions for our happiness. And movements like the populace of the late 19th century demonstrate what collective action has the potential to do for not only groups, but the larger societies in turn. Dr. Steve Babson, a forgotten populace, when farmers turned left to save democracy, have to check it out. Dr. Babson, thank you so much for joining us today to chat about your wonderful book and a bit about the past. We love it. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure being here. Pleasure is all ours. Let's talk with Trent R. Nelson. Pick up a book and learn a bit about the past. Might teach you a bit about the future.